I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Even though the rain hides the stars, even though the mist swirls the hills, even when the dark clouds fill the sky, you are by my side. Even when the Shall fall in sleep, even when at dawn the sky shall weep, even in the night when storms shall rise, you are by my side, you are by my side. based on an old Irish proverb. That song became one of the main songs of mourning in the US after the Twin Towers tragedy of 9-11. It was written and sung by an award-winning, critically acclaimed songwriter, author and Roman Catholic priest. And we're delighted to welcome him as our special holiday weekend guest, Liam Lawton. That song obviously has a very special significance for you, not just with 9-11, it has to be said. Um, I come from County Offaly and um, my uncle was my music mentor. There was always a great uh, tradition of music in our family. And um, he and I were um, about to do two uh, charity events and um, he went out on the Nace Road and tragically was killed, didn't come home. I suppose I was grieving and, and, and didn't realise how it had affected me because in ministry I'd been in, involved in other situations but when it comes to your own doorstep it's, it's just a very different place. So I lost all interest in writing and I lost all interest in performing or music. I didn't want to listen to music. And I think I was walking around in this kind of grey space. And then one day, um, 
uh, a lady who I knew sent me a card that she had made herself. And on the front of it, just very plainly were written these two lines from an old prayer from Kerry that said, and remember, uh, when the clouds veil the sky, I am still there. It, it was kind of the, I suppose, an epiphany moment in one sense. And I, I, from that, I, I sat down that evening and wrote the piece. And the song um, became kind of part and parcel of choir repertoire. But then on the day after 9-11, when everything happened, then I had a phone call from the publishers in the United States asking me if I would uh, donate the song as a download because they were looking for a piece of music that would be reflective of, I, I suppose in one sense, all the images that were coming in on the screens. And so it had been decided officially in the United States and then the following Friday was going to be a national day of mourning. And they looked at a number of pieces and they came up with this one because they felt that the, the images were, were kind of appropriate. And then it was only afterwards, actually, there was a girl... Um, who was um, a singer in New York, and she began to sing at all the funeral services, and she began to sing this. So it's only afterwards then you begin to realise that it becomes part of other people's stories, of family stories, nothing to do with you at all. I think one of the things that touched me also was the fact that uh, when uh, the actual tragedy happened, many of the, the bodies and many of the wounded were brought into a small church called Trinity Church, which is just there beside Ground Zero. And um, for days afterwards, that became a focal point, and in the middle of the wall are written the lines from the clouds veil. So that was really moving to know that. Now, you've written about that in your new book, Where God Hides, and we'll come back to the book in a moment. But first, I want to go back to the beginning. How and why did you become a priest? It's <sighs> the age-old question. I grew up in a very normal, you know, happy home. I think there was always a sense of altruism in my home. My, my mother was, has been, always been very involved with the St. Vincent de Paul. Dad came from Cork, from East Cork. And it was always kind of, people were always treated with dignity and, you know, and hospitality. And I think that's, and then we, we prayed together as a family in a natural way, not in any kind of fundamentalist way or anything like that. And because of that, then I, I went at the nearest university to us and all my friends from school were going to Maynooth. I was very interested in, in human rights and, and I was a m member of Amnesty International. And, and um, <clears throat> when I was studying uh, political geography, there were a group of guys in uh, my year who were missionaries who had come back after doing what they call stage or two years. Some of them had been to South America, some of them had been to the Philippines and Asia and other places like that. So it was always very um, energising and you know, a lot of debate, I, I suppose, on the area of liberation theology. So then I decided that maybe I, I'd look further and I would look theology. I think one of the things, now looking back on it, that, that um, probably influenced me also was that um, I'm an identical twin. And so my brother was with me in, in college and there was a bond there. And I, I don't know if I was ready yet to be able to go our separate ways and head off out to, you know, Africa or Asia or South America, somewhere like that. So I decided I would study theology, and then I decided that um, I, I'd stay at home and, and, and do it. So it was just a general progression in that way. I mean, I was really interested in the music, but I, I, I didn't think that in, I, I would be able to develop in any way, you know. Um, so how did the music come into it then? Well, believe it or not, there was always music in the family, and, and my, my twin brother and my other two brothers play music, and... Um, 
when I went to the seminary, I, I kind of left it behind me. And for the first seven years when I became ordained, I, I, I didn't write anything, which was crazy in one sense. But it was the t- sign of the times, and I think I felt that I had to fit into a particular mold and into an image, and you couldn't do that. And, and then I, I kind of almost imploded. I, I wasn't honoring something that was, I, I think, part of my life. So I decided then that I, I, I would start writing, and, I, and I, it was over a long process I did. But 1996, I recorded the first collection of music. And then 2004, um, I signed with EMI then. And that kind of opened a lot of doors then for me. And how did, in, go back to 1996, how did that come about that you were actually recording? Writing and playing is one thing, but to actually get a recording team. <laughs> you know, they say that you have to be in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. and there's luck. And I believe that. I was, um, I went to a music conference and there was a guy from America over um, giving some workshops at the conference. And he heard some music that I was playing. He heard me um, down a hallway on a, just an ordinary upright piano, and I was rehearsing. And he stood by and he came and listened. He said, where did you get that music? And I said, well, actually, actually, my own. So he said, could I hear some more of it? I'll come back later on. So he did, and he went away. And unknown to me then, he phoned his publishers in Chicago and said, look, and I, I've just heard some music I think you might be interested in. So a couple of months afterwards, I was on a flight out to Chicago. So <laughs> it was probably just the right place at the right time. Or divine intervention, well, some might say either. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay, let's, A bit of both, I think. A bit of both. Let's come to the book. It's called Where God Hides, and it's described as a journey of divine awakening. Now, it's not your first book, but how did you come to write this one? Really, the book relates to, I suppose, my experiences. It's This year, um, it's really about 20 years since I began to publish music and compose and perform, etc. And usually, there, well, there always is a context for the songs. And I found that when I went to perform, if we do a concert, I would tell the stories of the songs or give the context. And I found that people were very interested in that. And interested in, you know, afterwards you'd meet people, or particularly with emails, and they begin to question, why did you say this, or why did you write this, or how did this come about? So I decided then that I'd like to share maybe some of the experiences in, in a book form. And I've called it Where God Hides, because for me, God hides, or God reveals himself or herself in the most human of experiences. And so many times, I think God, or love, or beauty whatever you call God by. And for me, personalised in Jesus Christ is revealed particularly in unexpected places and unexpected times. And, and the, really the, the book is about the stories of those times. Well, let's take chapter one for a start. Um, you write that you found the hidden compassion of God in the aftermath of a burglary at your own home. So the irony of it was I had gone to Cork to do a charity event. And the night I was there, I was really tired after it. And I decided, no, I'm not going to drive back up. So I, I asked the people who were um, running the event if they would get a bed for me for the night. So they very kindly did. So I, I went back the following morning I, I, and um, I went around the back of the house to put some newspapers in the dustbin. I saw the back door open and I said, oh, don't tell me I left the door open. And then I went in and as I walked in, I realized, oh, my God, this is not just wind damage. This is The whole house had been absolutely trashed and wrecked. I felt it was very, in a very violent way. And then I was asking myself, who would want to do this to me or why would people do this? And then I realised, you know, that there wasn't anything personal and that it really was 
they were obviously strung out, I think, and they were looking for money. And there were two things about it. Uh, there was a lot of things about it, but there were two things. All my music had gone, but the one thing that hadn't been damaged, like they broke the furniture, they broke the windows, and so many things, but they didn't break the piano. <laughs> uh, thank God that, uh, you know. <clears throat> but anyway, what happened was um, the, the police and the, 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 the detectives arrived and they wouldn't let me touch the house until they had gone, you know, did all that kind of stuff. So that night about 10 o'clock, I sat down and to try and sort the mess out. And one of the places, um, I like to be organized, you know, I, I think I have to be organized. So I sat down to try and just sort out all of these. And suddenly I found in the middle of all the stuff um, a whole box of old photographs of friends and family or events or places I'd been to. And I just became totally immersed in the photographs. And in just a brief moment, it just came to me that maybe I was rich beyond what I thought, that, that despite all the stuff that had been taken, that they could never take this from me, which was, you know, the goodness of friends and the goodness of people. And, you know, and then the doorbell rang and I went out and there was a, a, a guy at the door who, I, who was from the other side of town, who I just knew. I knew his family, but I didn't know him well at all. And he just said... I heard what had happened and we just want to say we're so sorry. And he handed me a bottle of wine and then he just walked away. And Well, that's that's a point <coughs> that you develop in a later chapter then because you talk about how we got uh, so caught up with materialistic stuff in the last number of years and that you applaud historical figures who didn't live like that, who settled for less. I, I, I Yeah, and I think that simplicity is the key. I mean, I, I think I, I write in the chapter of the book as well how I, I had spent a couple of days with the Amish and that was really very, very interesting because I began to see how, even though their their lives were very structured, and I'm sure beneath the surface there are stresses and tensions and all that kind of stuff, but there was a whole decluttering as well that that I wish I had in my life. And you know, I don't know if you know anything about Amish architecture as well. It's it's the lines are so clear and concise, and and every home has a place for everything. You know, and I. Looking at that and observing that, I, I began to realise that how, how cluttered my own life was, you know, and you know, and if the spaces are cluttered, well, then surely our minds are cluttered as well. You were slightly troubled, though, by the fact that the young people are sent away out into the real world, and if they choose not to come back, they're cut off completely. Yeah, when they get to about sixteen or seventeen, they they're allowed to go out into the world and mix with what they call the Englishers, who are people like ourselves. And after two years, then, they have to make a choice to come back into the, into the clan or into the fold. And if they decide to marry outside of the fold, well, then they're cut off. And so because of that, then, very few do it because they obviously, the, you know, the, the bond, family ties and community ties are, are very, very strong. There was an awful lot of values that I liked also that we had in this country many, many years ago, but we probably lost sight of because we became too individualistic. Are we going back there, do you think? I, I think so. I, I, I do think so. You know, I, I think, I know there's been an awful lot of pain in the last couple of years, but I think maybe also it has stopped us in our tracks to maybe ask the questions, you know, what is important for us? And, and particularly in community life, I think we need one another. Absolutely. Now, you talked earlier about studying uh, political geography and your travels have taken you to some, some of the hotspots. Tell us about your trip to Bosnia. I'd been to Bosnia uh, a number of times, and then a friend of mine, a journalist, uh, was writing uh, about the war there, and she asked me if I would accompany her 
I hadn't given much thought to it. I said, yeah, I, I'll go with you. But it, it really was only when I got there and began to travel around during the war that I realised that this is a most awful, awful... I remember, Eileen, I remember uh, praying one night that my people, my country, my friends, my family would never experience anything like this. And I thought also as well, the second thing I realised is I thought that I'd known fear in my life. But it wasn't until I got there that I realised what true fear was. And I remember one day um, we went to deliver um, aid to a hospital and we had been warned by the UNCHR that we were going in at our own risks, that they wouldn't come with us. So we had to make a decision. But I had brought um, equipment from um, that had been given by uh, doctors and, and medical staff here in Ireland and um, which were very, very um, useful in terms of operating on bones after explosions and stuff like that. And I wanted to get it into the hospital. So we travelled in anyway, and um, I remember being very, very frightened because I remember seeing uh, the car behind me uh, being riddled with bullets. And and, um, the thing about it was, at that stage too, was that if somebody had been shot, they were left there. And that you could be there for a month because they were afraid that the bodies were booby-trapped so nobody would go near them. So there was an awful lot of, you know, I remember one day also being in a refugee camp. This was really, really difficult. And um, I saw a little 10-year-old girl looking after her mother. The mother was completely uh, spaced out. She and many of the women in the camp had suffered from multiple rape. And this little girl of 10, it was a complete reversal of roles. And there was a palpable, huge palpable sadness in the place. There was also a great palpable evil. I mean, if ever I experienced evil, it certainly was was there as well. You know, and that you begin to wonder, you know, how can the the dignity of human beings stoop so low that you would, you know, that you would cause so much suffering to the weakest and the most vulnerable? There was an awful lot of sadness there. But once again, music played a role there too. Yeah, yeah. I remember, um, and thank you for saying that, because you could get lost in thought as well and somewhere back there. Uh, we went to um, uh, we went to the hospital in Mostar, I remember. And there are seven stories, and I remember this, there are seven stories in the hospital. And all the, the, um, the different levels had been bombed out. So when we went in, they were operating without any anaesthetic in the hallways. And then we went down into the basement where all the people who had were recovering or recuperating were in the basement. And I remember seeing uh, beautiful little children. You know, there was a family there who had been trying to flee the city and they were hit by snipers. Just beautiful small kids all bandaged up anyway. So somebody said to me, would you sing? I felt really guilty about it. I don't know why. I think it was that, that... I always associate singing with maybe, you know, happier occasions or you have to have a reason to sing in that. And I felt that how can I sing in a place like this? But in fact, I did sing and um, I remember seeing tears flowing freely. And I remember a, a, a mother, the mother of those children coming over and saying to an interpreter, thank you for not forgetting us. You know, and it might sound cheesy here now many years afterwards, but... It, it, um, I was glad I did, you know, and I think in some sense too that perhaps that we take for granted the gifts that we have that, and, and, and when we use them from from a good place, 
that they can in some way, you know, bring healing. Well, that's you say in the book that you believe that music is a divine gift entrusted to us by God. Can you see that in popular music? I think you'll always, I, I, I think if if our gifts are used from a sincere place and a good place and for the right reasons, we will never know how we impact on other people's lives. And I think you can say that for all types of music. Absolutely. Time is running out on us, unfortunately. I just want to ask you about, you based each chapter on a line from Ecclesiastes. Why is that important to you? Um, well, there are certain parts of, of, of the Bible that I really like, and I, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. You often heard, hear it read at weddings or, or sometimes at funerals as well. But the reason I like it is because it, it kind of in some way encompasses the whole experience of emotion, also the experience of living itself, and there's almost a cycle of life within it. And and I thought that it would be a nice way in some way to, you know, to categorise the various experiences that I've had. Now, we played The Clouds Veil at the beginning of the programme. We've asked you to choose a piece for the, the end of the programme. And I know you have a big attachment to St. Kevin and Glendalough, and that's the one you've chosen. Tell us why. Um, Glendalough is a place that I love to go to because I find it very inspiring. It's not too far from me, so it's fairly accessible. But I love to walk there. No matter what time of the year you go there, the light is constantly changing and it's beautiful. But it's also in keeping, I suppose, in step with the thousands and thousands of people who've walked through the centuries there. And I think there's always a great energy there because, you know, the prayer, the goodness of people just doesn't dissipate. It's it's always there. And um, so I was writing a a musical suite a number of years ago uh, for the Irish community, actually, in Chicago, and um, one of the pieces was called the Glen the Lock theme. It's an orchestral piece. Liam Lawton, thank you indeed for being our special guest this evening. My pleasure. And we're going to leave you with that piece. Liam's book, published by Hachette Books Ireland, is called Where God Hides. And it's a book that will bring great comfort to its readers. We'd also like to let you know that Liam will be going on tour during the month of December. Details on the website, Liam? Yes, yeah, www.liamlawton.com. Great stuff. And just before we go, thanks to everyone who entered our Jesse Box competition and congratulations to Kevin Hayes, who teaches at St. Saviour's National School Ballybeg in Waterford City, and to Daniel Craven from Coolock in Dublin, the two lucky winners. Your prizes will be wending their way to you soon and they'll make terrific and unusual Christmas gifts for the little ones. And Daniel, in answer to your question, our programme on the 5th of this month was devoted to Vatican II. You can listen to it by accessing the God Slots page on the RTE Radio 1 website. And watch out this Sunday evening at half past ten on RTE 1 television for The Meaning of Life, when Gay Burns' guest will be footballer turned entrepreneur Niall Quinn. Also, the annual Team Hope Christmas shoebox appeal is back with a deadline of November the 12th. For more information on that, go to www.com teamhope.ie and we'll put that address on our website. We welcome your comments always to godslot at rte.ie or to our postal address, the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4 and our phone number is 01208 We'll be back next Friday at the same time, so until then enjoy the bank holiday weekend. Slán is banacht. <laughs>